Think about this. What are Republicans for? What are they for? Name me one thing they're for. One thing? Well, mayhem, destruction of American democracy, destruction of human civilization. They're for plenty of things. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling there's something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, it's the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon, on the Central Coast, on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV. Out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Internet on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. Five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, continuously, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Okie dokie, then. This is fun. Well, we'll see how much fun it is, but uh, I <laughs> think right. this is uh, somewhat fun, as noted on our previous broadcast. Uh, fun and scary, I should I should uh, caveat there. Uh, as noted on our previous show, now that Trump's uh, packed and stolen U.S. Supreme Court has allowed the National Archives to begin turning over documents to the bipartisan House Select Committee investigating his January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol in hopes of stealing the 2020 election, uh, I noted we were likely to begin seeing a boatload of stuff from Trump's White House from on or before January 6th, some of which I was quite interested in just based on what we think is there. Uh, as you'll recall, Desi Doyen, among the notes I uh, among the items I noted on on that show that I was looking forward to, a draft a supposed draft executive order that was never actually implemented that would allow federal officials to seize all voting systems across the country. Remember that? Oh, yes. Remember that? We've been talking about it for a while. Yes, because it's very concerning. Uh, It is very concerning. Well, uh, now now we know how concerning it is, and I will share it with you because this afternoon, Betsy Woodruff Swan... I guess she got married, of Politico, appears to have gotten her hands on that uh, draft executive order. And it is what was surmised, along with a few surprises, such as a lengthy quote from the long running court case to bar a federal court case to bar 
Georgia's 100% unverifiable touchscreen ballot marking devices, or BMDs, made by Dominion Voting Systems and deployed to the entire state in 2020. That, longtime listeners of the broadcast may remember, is the lawsuit filed by our friends at the Coalition for Good Governance and uh, the longtime election security advocate who heads it and friend of the show, Marilyn Marks. Wow. Uh, yeah, like I said, that was fun. Now, uh, and, I'll, and I'll share the, the details of this in a moment, but just by way of full disclosure, uh, I am personally a plaintiff in a separate lawsuit in Georgia filed by the coalition. I'm named as a representative of, of the media challenging Georgia's SB202 law, that's their voter suppression and election subversion law, which includes some very serious First Amendment freedom of the press violations, which a federal judge in that case has already conceded uh, were likely to be successful. So uh, that is a separate lawsuit. So that was filed also by the Coalition of Good Governance and Marilyn Marks. But it's a separate lawsuit from the one quoted in this draft, uh, this draft executive order for uh, written for Donald Trump, written in December of 2020. The lawsuit uh, quoted in this draft order, actually it's uh, from the judge, the judge's finding in, in that case, uh, quoted in this draft executive order, was the uh, was that lawsuit was the one seeking to ban the state's unverifiable Dominion touchscreen voting systems uh, following the previous banning, thanks to the same lawsuit, of the state's previous unverifiable touchscreen systems made by Diebold, which were used in Georgia for around 20 years and found by the U.S. District Court Judge Amy Totenberg to be so unsecure and vulnerable to manipulation as to make them unconstitutional. That's why they were banned in Georgia, and that's why Georgia was then forced to replace them they decided, at least Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, decided not to replace them with a verifiable hand-marked paper ballot system at the polls, but rather an unverif a new unverifiable touchscreen voting system that Raffensperger insisted every county in the state had to use for the first time in 2020. These new systems, not made by Diebold, but by Dominion. Got it? OK, so two separate lawsuits. The one we're talking about was the one to ban those unverifiable voting machines. Now, with that context, Politico's Betsy Woodruff Swan reports today among the records that Donald Trump's lawyers tried to shield from January 6 investigators are a draft executive order that would have directed the defense secretary to seize voting machines. The executive order, which also would have appointed a special counsel to probe the 2020 election, was never issued. The remarks are a draft of a speech. Uh, there's additionally uh, remarks uh, of a speech that Trump was to give the next day titled Remarks on National Healing. But we'll stick to this executive order for the moment. It is not clear who wrote either of those documents, Woodruff Swan reports, but the draft executive order is dated December 16, 2020, and is consistent with proposals that lawyer Sidney Powell made to the then president. 
on December 18. So that would be two days after this uh, this executive order was dated. Uh, December 18 of 2020, Powell, along with former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn and former Trump administration lawyer Emily Newman and former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne, <laughs> for some reason, uh, met with Donald Trump in the Oval Office. In that meeting, Powell urged Trump to seize voting machines and to appoint her as a special counsel to investigate the election, according to Axios. Now, uh, and that was previously reported yes. uh, last year. Now, I will note the uh, the final directive in this draft order, this draft executive order, calls for, quote, the appointment of a special counsel to oversee this operation, the operation to seize all the voting machines, etc., and institute all criminal and civil proceedings as appropriate based on the evidence collected and provided all resources necessary to carry out her duties consistent with federal laws and the Constitution. So, yeah, the uh, crooked, uh, arguably insane, I don't know, Sidney Powell was pushing for herself to be named as a special counsel, it appears, and may have personally drafted this EO herself, though the author of the document is not clear based on the document published by Woodruff Swan today. A spokesman for the House's January 6th Select Committee confirmed on Friday that the panel had received the last of the documents that Trump's lawyers tried to keep under wraps and later declined to comment for this story on these documents. So it sounds like the National Archives has, has already given all the stuff that the House had had requested, which is, I guess, not a surprise since they it's been several months that they have been fighting over them and had uh, otherwise been prepared to hand them over until they were stopped by the courts. And then eventually the courts allowed the Supreme Court allowed these to go through. Woodruff Swan reports the draft executive order shows that the weeks between Election Day and the Capitol attack could have been even more chaotic than they were. It credulously cites conspiracy theories about election fraud in Georgia and Michigan, as well as debunked notions about Dominion voting machines. And I will note here that it cites some debunked notions about specific Dominion voting machines, like the ones that were misconfigured in the Republican county of Antrim, Michigan, a misconfiguration that was quickly spotted after Election Day when it appeared to show that Joe Biden had actually won that very Republican county. A, uh, an investigation, a full hand count of the paper ballots quickly confirmed that indeed Trump had won that county. And this misconfiguration was uh, similarly explained to have been a uh, just an error. Uh, essentially, of a Republican county election official. But luckily, there were hand-marked paper ballots to count. That they were able to go back and count. There was all sorts of information they were able to go back and make sure that 
Uh, in fact, it was a, a programming error. There was not some sort of malware. Right. In other words, the election procedures worked to root out that there was a problem and Correct. to solve it. Correct. So, yes, that's one of the debunked notions that they cite as reason for seizing all the machines in the country, I guess. But other information or notions, uh, as Politico puts it, about the Dominion voting machines, particularly those cited in the quotation from the uh, court case from Marilyn Marks and the Coalition uh, of good, for Good Governance, uh, those things are not debunked. They're actually true things. They concern the vulnerability to malware of these types of computer voting systems. For example, Judge Totenberg wrote and is quoted in this draft, uh, this draft Trump executive order. She's quoted as writing, uh, quote, these are true risks posed by the new ballot marking device systems, uh, the ones, uh, the Georgia Dominion voting systems. As, as well as its manner of impl implementation, these risks are neither hypothetical nor remote. Under the current circumstances, the insularity of the defendants and Dominion stance here in evaluation and management of the security and vulnerability of the BMD system does not benefit the public or citizens' confident exercise of the franchise. The stealth vote alteration or operational interference risks posed by malware that can be effectively invisible to detection, whether intentionally seeded or not, are high once implanted if equipment and software systems are not properly protected, implemented, and audited. That uh, purportedly from Judge Totenberg. Now, there are some typos in that. I'm not sure if they were Totenbergs or if they were Sidney Powell's or whoever put these in place. They go on to say, to quote the judge as saying, the plaintiff's national cybersecurity experts convincingly present evidence that this is not a question of will this actually happen, but when it will happen. And so, yes, uh, these are these are, you know, concerns about someone somehow implanting malware into the uh, into these systems. Uh, so these are real concerns about these machines. And yes, we have long warned about such concerns that can be exploited even if they do not actually occur, as we are seeing here. People can claim that they have occurred thanks to the opaque nature of these systems which count ballots in secret inside the, the computer and which, in the case of computer printed ballots on ballot marking device systems, BMD systems, because they're not in the they're not handmarked by the actual voter. They're actually printed out by the computer. That means that after an election, we cannot know if any computer printed ballot actually represents the intent of any voter. So they're taking real concerns and claiming that they actually happened. And that was one of the things I one of the things I've been warning about for years that bad guys would be able to do, even in the case of a 100 percent secure election. So back to uh, Woodruff here, uh, the order empowers the defense secretary to, quote, seize, collect, retain and analyze all machines, equipment, electronically stored information and material records required for retention under a U.S. law that relates to the preservation of election records. It also cites a lawsuit filed in 2017 against Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. That's Maryland's lawsuit. 
Additionally, the draft order would have given the defense secretary 60 days, 60 days to write an assessment of the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. Which, are you doing the math here? Uh, That uh, suggests that it could have been a gambit to keep Trump in power until at least mid-February of 2021, after, of course, the constitutional January 20th inauguration date. Yeah, so create the illusion of problems by putting out an executive order as a pretext then to delay Trump's removal from office and the peaceful transfer of power. You got it. Uh, There's also some uh, information in here that suggests whoever wrote this thing had uh, access to classified information that, uh, you know, some information, some uh, national security presidential memoranda that were not released to the public. That's interesting to bolster its provisions. The draft order cites, quote, the forensic report of Antrim County, Michigan, And the voting machines there, that report was produced by Russ Ramsland, who actually confused precincts in Minnesota for those in Michigan. (laughs) Uh, Michigan's Secretary of State, meanwhile, released an actual exhaustive report on Antrim, Michigan, rebutting the election conspiracy theories, the evidence-free ones, and concluding that none of the known anomalies in Antrim County's November 2020 election were actually the result of any sort of security breach. Uh, Liz Goitin, uh, co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the nonprofit Brennan Center for Justice, also a guest. She's been a guest on the yeah. show, has she not? Uh, she's quoted here saying this uh, this draft order represents not only an abuse of emergency powers, but a total misunderstanding of them. She said the order doesn't even make the basic finding of an unusual and extraordinary threat that would be necessary in order to trigger any action under federal emergency powers law. It's the equivalent, she said, of a kid scrawling on the wall with crayons. (laughs) Not that that would have stopped the Trump administration from trying it. Correct. Uh, This executive order also states a whole bunch of other demonstrably Untrue nonsense, or at least charges for which there is actually zero evidence. Uh, Zero evidence now, much less back then, back in December of 2020, when they were hoping to make these claims through a presidential executive order. For example, they were also claiming that there is, uh, quote, probable cause to believe that every voting system used in the country and, by the way, many that were not used in the country in 2020, much less in the states that Trump was pretending were stolen from him, were somehow hacked and manipulated. And then they go about naming every single voting machine company, voting registration system company that they can apparently come up with, even some of these companies who do no business at all in the United States. At the end of the uh, quoted portion from uh, Judge Totenberg, this is from Marilyn Mark's lawsuit, uh, they quote the judge as writing, Still, this is year one for Georgia in implementation of this new BMD system as the first state in the nation to embrace statewide implementation of this QR barcode-based BMD system for its entire population. Electoral dysfunction, cyber or otherwise, should not be 
desired as a mode of proof, it may well land, unfortunately, on the state's doorstep. The court certainly hopes not. So in other words, she's saying we shouldn't wait until something goes terribly wrong before doing something here. But the judge did not ban those systems as uh, as Marx had hoped at the time, and they were eventually used. And well, uh, here we are. Uh, but the executive order goes on to say that while the judge said we, you know, she certainly hopes these things don't happen, the executive order says, and yet it did. <laughs> Every defect and hazard of which Judge Totenberg uh, warned happened in Georgia. Of course, there is absolutely zero evidence that any of it happened in Georgia. Or anywhere else. There were a whole bunch of problems with Georgia's elections, but no evidence of any sort of malware. And yet that's what they were claiming here in this executive order that was prepared for the president of the United States to order the Department of Defense to seize the nation's voting systems. And, well, who knows what would happen thereafter? So I've just been able to dig into this this afternoon. I've sent a request for comment to Marilyn Marks and some other experts involved in her lawsuit. I have have not yet heard back from her as of airtime. We may need to have Marilyn back on our next show to discuss all of this. We'll see. I did hear back from UC Berkeley's. Dr. Philip Stark, who I, uh, I believe is an expert witness in uh, in that particular case. Uh, he tells me, quote, well, the obvious point is that the vulnerabilities undeniably exist, but there is so far no evidence that they were exploited in 2020, contrary to the claims in the draft executive order. He also offered a few other thoughts I don't have time to cover at the moment. But again, hopefully we'll discuss all of this more in detail with Marilyn uh, or Professor Stark. Uh, who is also a fairly regular guest on this broadcast. And, of course, this is just some of what is likely to be hundreds of documents from the National Archives from the Trump White House. From, <laughs> a whole new wave of crazy. Yeah. from uh, We thought they were crazy. We know they were crazy, but maybe we have no idea just how crazy they were. We have not yet plumbed the depths. Uh, also, as I noted uh, yesterday, it may include the uh, supposed unreleased uh, video takes of Trump's infamous uh, video, We Love You, You're Very Special, But It's Time to Go Home, that Twitter video that he released a few hours into the uh, Capitol attack after it was long underway when he finally uh, put out that video. Apparently there were other takes that they were not so comfortable about releasing. Uh, supposedly about six of them. We may see those in the days ahead. What did he say? Well, we may find out. So, yeah, it is stuff like this that makes it particularly insane. When I go on to read, uh, you know, media outlets talking about Biden's Joe Biden's approval ratings are in the 40s. Uh, his presidency is a disaster. Is he a failed president? He couldn't pass Build Back Better. Is it all over for the Democrats? Really? Have y'all forgotten what just happened in this country? Frankly, the question they should be asking is, uh, what happens if Donald Trump and the Republicans who still support him and who tried everything they could 
to block any bipartisan committee or independent commission from looking into this stuff, to looking into what happened on January 6th and just how close we came to losing this entire what I will refer to as democracy. Maybe they should be asking that rather than, oh, is it all over for the Democrats? They couldn't pass their bill. Anyway, uh, you don't go into politics, I guess, with the media you want. You go into politics with the media that you have. So no matter what the previous criminal guy did or didn't do, yes, Democrats are going to have to perform if they want to stand a chance of not being run out of their congressional majorities in this November's midterms and even out of the White House in 2024. To that end... The American Prospects' Harold Meyerson has a few ideas on how Democrats can, maybe, we'll see, salvage Joe Biden's Build Back Better agenda and on the Democratic Prospects for 2022. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Our nightmare election may be over, but new ones are on the way. Here at the Bradcast and Bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. Please help us continue that fight over your public airwaves by stopping by Bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Really? They can only get better? We will see. We hope so. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Happily, the past week has been a very, very bad one for our disgraced former president from the eight to one ruling by his own packed and stolen U.S. Supreme Court that the House Select Committee investigating his deadly January 6 attack on the Capitol and attempt to steal the 2020 election could, in fact, receive hundreds, if not thousands, of his White House documents from the National Archives for review in their probe. For example, like that draft executive order to seize the nation's voting machines, as we just detailed in our previous segment. From that to the news that the same committee is now seeking an interview with Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, regarding her observations of and con uh, conversations with her daddy at the White House on that day and in the days prior to the insurrection. An, an interview which will be much more difficult to duck now, given the Supreme Court's ruling that Trump and his cronies are unlikely to be able to hide behind executive privilege claims anymore. From that to the similarly, arguably worse bad news that New York's attorney general has a lot of evidence revealing apparent bank tax and insurance fraud by Donald Trump and his kids, Ivanka, Eric and Don Jr., to the really, really bad news that Fulton County, Georgia's district attorney is seeking to form a special grand jury to aid in her investigation of Trump's broad criminal conspiracy to steal the 2020 election in the Peach State. So, yeah, a no good, very bad, happily horrible week for the former president. But while there is no jail time at stake this 
past week, these past several, in fact, have not been particularly great ones for the current president either, at least when it comes to his political agenda and the media coverage that he's received for them and a bunch of stuff very much out of his control. That at the end of his first year in office. While most of the issues that are beguiling his approval ratings of late are not actually within his direct control, there's only so much he can do about global inflation, an aggressive move to threaten Ukraine by Russia, and a two-year pandemic that just does not seem to want to relent. The political failure, whether it's his direct fault or not, to get two key policy goals over the finish line will clearly come at a high price for Democrats in this November's midterms, unless they are able to turn things around somehow, for example, on Biden's largest and most ambitious proposal, the Build Back Better Act. That stalled in the U.S. Senate before year's end, thanks yes again to the intransigence of obstructionist West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin. And along with it, Biden's promise to transformatively expand education, health care, child care, elder care, and for the first time, take on our climate emergency in a real, lasting and substantive way. But hey, politics ain't beanbag, as they say. So what now? How can President Biden and the Democrats reverse their fortunes over the coming months and build back the Build Back Better plan to meet the must-have approval of Lord Manchin and, yes, Lady Cinema of Arizona? Or at least demonstrate to voters before November that more, not fewer, Democrats are needed in the U.S. Senate to move the nation forward and stave off the GOP's attempt to scuttle the Biden presidency entirely and, along with it, the prospects of American small-D democratic governance. A bad year and a bad fourth quarter, observed Harold Meyerson, longtime progressive columnist at the American Prospect this week. What with rampages by the four horsemen of democratic decline, Omicron, inflation, mansion, and cinema, he writes, it will be no easy task for Joe Biden and the Democrats to extricate themselves from this hole. And that's what he argued before adding, but certainly passing a scaled back Build Back Better bill would help. Would it? And if so, how exactly do Democrats pull that off? at least as long as Lord Manchin still reigns in the U.S. Senate. Joining us now to answer some of those questions and maybe more is Harold Meyerson, editor-at-large of the American Prospect magazine, where he has been serving since 2001 after serving many years as a weekly columnist for The Washington Post. Welcome back to the broadcast, Mr. Meyerson, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Brad. So uh, I, don't, I don't know quite what to be happy about, but happy to be you, We will find something, Harold. Actually, <laughs> your uh, your column, your several columns this week actually gave me some reason to maybe be happy. We'll see. Your your call for, uh, at least it gave me some hope, your, your call to build back the uh, Build Back Better agenda in smaller, scaled-back chunks seemed to also be echoed by President Biden a few days later during his press conference on Wednesday. Uh, marking his first year in office, suggesting that he would be open to exactly that. But let's start with your prescription as your headline reads as to how Democrats can dig themselves out of their current hole. 
Before we get to what the president said he believed was possible, what do you believe is both possible and necessary for Democrats to get out of this hole? Well, several things. Uh, first of all, the hardest thing is that there are, as you noted uh, in your opening remarks, it, it would really help if some things that are not at all in uh, President Biden's control or the congressional Democrats' control mm-hmm. uh, ease off, that being, of course, the pandemic and uh, in, in inflation, mm-hmm. which is wired into a dysfunctional supply chain that, you know, was uh, set up uh, in, in many ways is a series of policy errors 40, 50 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, the offshoring of American manufacturing, that, that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. they, need, they need a certain amount of good fortune as far as that goes. As to what they can do, I think President Biden pretty much echoed, I'm not claiming any uh, uh, uh-huh. authorship here, but I think he pretty much echoed some of the things I wrote. Uh-huh. Um, thing one is to go on the attack uh, against the Republicans who, as President Biden noted in his press conference, he said, uh, show me one thing they're for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I, I think that has to be uh, the, one of the Democrats' talking points as they go into November, that the Republicans really haven't articulated anything resembling an agenda whatsoever, even though the nation is in, uh, in many ways, pretty dire straits. Um, and, and I thought this echoed uh, I mean, I suggested this, and then he kind of echoed it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way Harry Truman waged to come from behind victory in the 1948 presidential uh, campaign, he he railed against the do-nothing Congress. Mm-hmm. And it's certainly the case that Republicans are, you know, uh, are quite content to do nothing on the economic travails that Americans face long-term, uh, you know, be it... Uh, uh, unaffordable child care, um, unaffordable drugs, you name it. And so I, I think what the Democrats are going to do, and it was President Biden who used the word chunks, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think what they're going to do is see how many chunks they mm-hmm. can actually uh, get Manchin to go along with, and they'll, they'll pass that with the reconciliation vote. That probably would include things like universal pre-K, and more affordable childcare. I'm not sure what else, but um, well, something yeah. on climate. I think, even though Joe Manchin's views on climate are uh, actually well to the right of the United Mine Workers, who want the bill to pass. Yeah, so, uh, and that is yeah. that is something because I wanted to ask. You know, well, well, we'll talk about Joe Manchin and climate in a second. But I mean, I'm wondering, you know, what specifically should be scaled back from this from this bill, because to be frank, it's not at all uh, necessarily clear what Joe Manchin actually opposes or supports in this bill. Do you have any clarity on that? Well, we know very unfortunately that he supposes the uh, increased child tax credit, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of a capstone for the Democratic agenda. And Joe Manchin says, repeatedly said he won't go for it. So, um, unfortunately, very unfortunately, that is going to be on the cutting room floor. Uh, But, you know, there's two ways to interpret the word chunks. First, it's what would remain in Build Back Better Mm -hmm. that uh, Biden and Sinema can live with. Secondly, I think the Democrats should force votes on them anyway, even if they're going to lose, because then you would have Republicans voting against such things as uh, more affordable drugs, mm-hmm. 
reducing what uh, seniors have to pay out of pocket for medications uh, and the child tax credit and a lot of other very important uh, very important stuff like making uh, community colleges uh, tuition free um, you know uh, if, if the House Democrats have to run against Republicans and it would be very nice if they could get Republicans to vote against those things which they entirely the entire Republican caucus will it, it, it uh-huh. One way to, you know, uh, take the notion of a do-nothing Congress and turn it against the Republicans. So I think, I think that's important uh, uh, that they keep uh, getting getting votes on that. That that creates, I think, a very clear contrast yeah. between the two parties, and particularly in the House, where the Democrats can can pass those things on the House mm-hmm. and then note that uh, all the Republicans voted against. Yeah, I, you know, I know, ironically here, because you were talking about, uh, you know, some of this is going to be necessary for for some of these Democrats in swing districts if they can't pass these things, at least hold a vote on it to make it clear uh, which side everyone is on in these matters. But, you know, it's kind of ironic that we're now talking about, you know, what these swing so-called swing district Democrats may need to win this November when... A number of Democrats from those swing districts were the ones who were, uh, if I recall, you know, pushing Democrats in the House to pass that trillion dollar bipartisan infrastructure bill. It was initially paired with the Build Back Better bill to sort of make sure that both would be passed. Uh, they, uh, on, But the, the swing district Dems sort of forced a vote on the uh, the the infrastructure bill, which ultimately allowed the Build Back Better bill to die, just as progressives had predicted would happen, and now we have to hold and votes to help to, those same to people. Get a vote on the Build Back Better bill that they denigrated because you know their uh-huh. political lives may depend upon it. But yeah. I should also point out, I should also point out that swing district Democrats uh, are universally for this strategy, including you know there are some liberal, there are some left swing district Democrats. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but, you know, I mean, essentially it's the political logic of the situation. And ironic though it is, uh, for Democrats like Josh Gottheimer, who led the charge uh, uh, mm-hmm. to decouple the two bills right. uh, in the House Democratic Caucus, um, you know, so we live with that irony. It's still the best, it's still the best available strategy. Yeah for the Democrats to have even a shot at holding the House in particular. Here was the uh, president at his presser on Wednesday when he was asked about the idea of, uh, of breaking up Build Back Better into smaller pieces. Uh, it's clear to me that, uh, that we're going to have to uh, probably uh, break it up. I think that we can get, and I've been talking to a number of my colleagues on the Hill, I think it's, it's clear that we would be able to get support for the for the 500 plus billion dollars for uh, energy and the environmental issues that are there uh, number one uh, number two uh, I know that uh, the two people who've opposed on the Democratic side at least um, support a number of the things that are in there for example Joe Manchin strongly supports early education three and four years of age strongly supports that um, there is strong support for I think uh, a number of uh, the way in which to pay for these, uh, uh, pay for this proposal. So I think there is, I'm not going to, I'm not going to negotiate against myself as to what should and shouldn't be in it, but I think we can break the package up, get as much as we can now and come back and fight for the rest later. 
So uh, that was the president at his press conference on Wednesday, marking his first year in office. Uh, you heard him, uh, Harold Myerson, say that he believed the energy environment portion could get through that $500 billion plus. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin from West Virginia coal country uh, has also, by the way, previously suggested as much that he might support that. But I got to say, I do not believe him. His family makes millions from the dirty coal industry, and I have a theory that the bulk of Manchin's opposition to this entire measure is actually all about coal and his family's personal fortune. Do you have any evidence that I am wrong? Do you believe that I'm wrong? And is Biden just going to be is, is he being hoodwinked yet again on that by Manchin? I don't know that I have any evidence that you're wrong, and I think uh, you're substantially right. I don't know that it, that is entirely the focus of, of where Manchin is at. I think he's kind of rotten on uh, <laughs> basic human economic rights as well. Uh, but, but it is an issue. And, and uh, just to get back to a point I made a little bit earlier, um, you know, the United Mine Workers, who are a pretty shriveled union mm -hmm. uh, compared to the mighty force they were in the first half of the 20th century and through the middle of the 20th century, mm -hmm. um, they understand that part of the Build Back Better bill was to create a real uh, a financial cushion for their members as, uh, you know, utilities just switched off coal, which they're doing anyway, right. not at a sufficient pace, mm -hmm. but um, as uh, renewable energy sources actually become cheaper than coal, uh, it's it's a normal business practice just to go to them. So, um, uh, you know, they want Mansion to support uh, to support the mm -hmm. the bill and the climate related things that are still remaining in the bill. Uh, and you know, Mansion essentially, as the New York Times pointed out, is is fighting not with the coal miners but the coal mine owners, yes. uh, partly because, as you pointed out, Brad, um, his family has a financial interest. Uh, uh, identical with the coal mine owners, mm -hmm. so it is. It is something we need to we need to watch. I don't know that we can affect, obviously, but we certainly need to watch it. Well, yeah, I mean, the notion that you know he's uh, he's standing with the uh, with the coal miners when they came out, the United Mine Workers came out twice, loud and clear before. Uh, Manchin ultimately uh, scuttled the Build Back Better bill, uh, and that did not seem to move Manchin. Yeah, he's not with the miners. He's with the industry. And as a matter of fact, there is money for miners uh, suffering from black lung disease that did not get passed in that Build Back Better. Uh, CNN's Manu Raju tweeted out on Thursday, quote, just caught up with Manchin, who set a very high bar for passing quote, chunks of Build Back Better plan. In short, he wants to see inflation, COVID, and the national debt dealt with first. Also said they'll be starting from scratch, and his December offer isn't on the table. Why starting from scratch? I do not believe that he is operating in good faith here, Harold, or that he has any intention of actually allowing any of this in truth. Uh, especially if we have to wait to control inflation, COVID, and the national debt. Let's solve that first. That should be easy. Yeah, and uh, he omitted climate change from the list, but mm -hmm. if it didn't require any financial sacrifice with, you know, with him, I think he would hold support uh, from the bill until we dealt with that. So, uh, yeah, uh, he is not someone who is, is working in good faith. Mm -hmm. He is a very self-absorbed 
individual, and it's not clear that any external realities matter all that much to him. And if that is true, and if there is nothing that he's actually going to allow to pass, does uh, your strategy still work? Do a whole bunch of votes between here and November to make it very clear where everybody stands? Well, it works in the House. I don't know that it matters much in the Senate, actually, but it certainly works in the House because uh, they can put a lot of Republicans on record uh, uh, against what is still popular stuff. And of course, the the irony here, you know, I mean, various pundits accuse Joe Biden of, of uh, catering to the left and whatnot. Uh, the irony is that the, the bulk of the Build Back Better bill, from holding down drug prices uh, to making uh, child care affordable uh, and, and a whole host of things, uh, and, and funding it by taxing uh, people who make more than $400,000 a year, are very popular. So, yeah. you know, I think making the Republicans vote against some very popular measures, uh, you know, as, as my grandmother would have said, can't hoit. <laughs> uh, and, you know. and why doesn't that strategy work in the in the Senate? Well, it might work in the Senate, but I mean, the problem is, you know, I mean, you're going to get uh, two Democrats voting uh, uh, against, even though, uh, you know, even if they voted for it, since the filibuster would still be in effect, uh, except on reconciliation, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, uh, it it wouldn't pass. Uh, it wouldn't pass anyway. It might work in the Senate too, but certainly, in particular, in the House and in, in in swing districts in the House, it might it might matter uh, considerably. I mean, they should try it in the Senate too. But uh, you know, we shall see how it goes. And and also, honestly, if uh, they can't get any part of Build Back Better through. Um, that is not going to work wonders exactly for Democratic turnout come November. No, it's going to be very, very bad, I fear. Uh, lastly, uh, Harold, our, our, uh, our friend, uh, media analyst Eric Bowler, joined us a few days ago to talk about what he writes about actually today in his press run newsletter that at the end of Barack Obama's first year in office, we saw similar headlines to what we have been seeing this, this past week about how uh, at that time, Obama's presidency was all but finished. Uh, of course, you know that before he went on to win a second term, left office with very high approval ratings. I've uh, I've made the argument that the media coverage over the past year has often been irresponsibly terrible and inaccurate for Joe Biden, uh, despite, you know, obvious missteps and a lot of obvious headwinds that he's had to contend with. As someone who has uh, watched, observed presidencies, both Democratic and Republican, for many years, and the press coverage that each have received, what is your uh, your sort of uh, quick assessment of the uh, of the presidency of, of Biden's presidency to date, and and how have the media done in covering a not insane or criminal president after four years of Donald well, Trump? Well, yeah, I mean, I don't think the media still can handle uh, what. Trump and the Republicans have become, that they are uh, an existential threat to American democracy. And there was one uh, sort of very straight-up survey that found that uh, Biden actually got a higher percentage of uh, bad press, as it were, stories Mm -hmm. in his first year in office Mm -hmm. than Donald Trump did. Um, You know, that is crazy. That is both-siderism, you know, at at a time when the two sides are really not equivalent, and one side... Uh, just, you know, can't be trusted with telling the truth about whether it's raining or sunny. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I don't think the press has exactly covered itself with glory. I think in some ways it's getting better. Um, you know, the word lie, uh, L-I-E, appears uh-huh. more frequently 
uh, in dealing with uh, the past, you know, with with Trump and mm-hmm. his people. Um, but the press, I think, still has some way to go. I mean, now that said, Biden made some unforced errors. The way, the mode of getting out of Afghanistan was certainly an unforced error. He made an unforced error in the press conference when he more or less said, uh, this is something that rather panicked mm-hmm. people who live in Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, about, well, you know, a small incursion is okay, right. um, which came as a surprise, I think, to Biden's staff, to um, mm-hmm. uh, other European nations, and certainly to, to Ukraine. So, you know, I mean, Biden makes fluffs, but a fluff is one thing. Systematic lying to undermine democracy is not really in the same ballpark as, um, you know, a Biden fluff. Yeah, and uh, and yet, it it feels it feels to me like the uh, the media have sort of just reverted. It's as if Trump never happened, and they've reverted to their old habits. You know, oh, uh, President uh, Trump is uh, I'm sorry, President Biden is is finished after his first failed year, a uh, a, a year that ended with higher approval ratings than Donald Trump had at the time, and yet I don't recall those same articles about Donald Trump's presidency is finished. Anyway, the uh... and, and you know to Biden, you know to Biden's credit, uh, the pandemic notwithstanding, uh, the economy is creating a lot of jobs, yeah. and that's that's largely because of the money the Democrats put into the economy at the beginning of the year. That one point nine trillion mm-hmm. uh, to be spent uh, ASAP. I mean, Build Back Better is infinitely cheaper than that because the big black better money is to be spent over a decade mm-hmm. uh not that that has made any impact on uh, on joe manchin and christian cinema right oh yes we got to worry about the national debt don't forget uh anyway you can read more by the way about some of that good news for labor's for labor and unions in harold's uh latest column today at the american prospect though after giving that good news he sort of goes on to ruin it with some uh <laughs> Actual evidence. I'm, a, I'm just a, I'm, 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 I'm just a spoiled sport at parties. He, yeah, you know, he, what can I say? he does that. Yeah, but you should read him anyway at prospect.org. You should follow him on the Twitters at Harold Meyerson. He is, of course, the editor at large of the American Prospect magazine, where he's been an editor since 2001. Harold Meyerson, always great speaking with you, my friend. Look forward to doing it again soon. Always great to be here, Brad. Thank you. Okay, uh, quick break, and we are back. Boy, what a program. Yeah. Uh, what a, <clears throat> I'm exhausted already, and we still have the C block to do. <laughs> and if you think it's going to get any better for you, Desi Doyen, uh, well, don't count your chickens. Just <laughs> wait. Right. Straight ahead on the broadcast, more fun. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The Bradcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. All right, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Oh, Desi, you're going to love this one. Okay. Uh, while getting uh, Build Back Better on, on course is obviously critical to the administration and the Democratic Party's political fortunes as this year's midterm elections come into focus, my interest in that bill is actually much larger than the political implications. Uh, I'm concerned about nothing less than the future of both American democracy and, yes, 
humanity. Oh, yeah. Civilization on planet Earth, which, uh, as as we discussed there with Harold Meyerson, uh, Biden's bill would have invested some $500 billion to try and, you know, save human civilization by helping to move our nation's energy supplies and subsequent deadly emissions rates from dirty, deadly fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy sources. So uh, in hopes of, of, I guess, trying to win over Joe Manchin and maybe some Republicans, the bipartisan $1 trillion infrastructure bill that Lord Manchin and Lady Cinema did allow uh, to be passed, that also included incentives to build electric vehicle charging stations and, if I recall, money, a whole bunch of money for carbon capture technology. Uh, that was the infrastructure bill, was it not? Debbie? Yeah, and there also is some in the Build Back Better bill, but yes, the bipartisan infrastructure bill did have considerable spending for carbon capture and storage. Which fossil fuel lovers believe is going to somehow save us. Uh, well, I don't know that they believe it. I know that the fossil fuel <laughs> industry is pushing it in order to continue producing fossil fuels and finding new markets for it. It will save them, I guess, is is more like it. Exactly. All right. So now we have this from Vice this week. Shell's, Shell, uh, you know, the oil company, Shell Oil's uh, Quest Carbon Capture and Storage Facility, a first-of-its-kind project, captured 5 million tons of carbon dioxide from the hydrogen produced at its Scottford complex in Alberta, Canada between 2015 and 2019. Well, that's very impressive. Five million tons of carbon dioxide taken out of the uh, out of the atmosphere. Scottford refines oil from the Alberta tar sands. But a new report from human rights organization Global Witness found that the hydrogen plant actually emitted seven and a half million tons of greenhouse gases in the same time frame. In other words, it emitted more than it actually sequestered. Correct. Uh, By the way, it emitted uh, of its (laughs) seven and a half million tons of emissions. It included methane, which has 80 times the warming power of carbon during its first 20 years in the atmosphere. It accounts for about a quarter of man-made warming today. So Vice says to put that in perspective, the so-called climate forward part of the Scottford plant alone has the same carbon footprint per year as one point two million Fuel-powered cars. In other words, it would have been better not to open the plant at all. Not to open the carbon capture plant. They would have captured more carbon by not opening the plant. Exactly. Uh, Dominic Eagleton, who wrote the report, said, We do think Shell is misleading the public. Uh, and only giving us one side of the story about that plant. He said industry's been pushing for governments to subsidize the production of fossil hydrogen, hydrogen produced from natural gas that's uh, supplemented with carbon capture technology, describing it as, quote, climate friendly. But it it isn't. But a climate friendly way forward. Yeah, the report shows that ain't the case. In an email, Shell said the facility was introduced to display the merits of carbon capture technology, but didn't directly respond to the allegation that its hydrogen component emitted seven and a half million tons of greenhouse gases. 
Quest was originally designed as a demonstration project to prove carbon capture technology and overall has met or exceeded our expectations, said the Shell Canada spokesperson. What were they expecting? I don't know. Uh, Doolin, uh, the spokesperson, also said that um, as of today, Quest has captured six million tons of carbon, not just five, but six million tons of carbon. But Global Witness noted that as time passes and the facility captures more carbon, yes, it will also emit more carbon. Quest has already inspired a separate carbon capture project in Norway, nonetheless, and another large-scale project in the Alberta Scottford facility. Meanwhile, Germany announced this week that even though it's opting to subsidize clean energy, uh, clean hydrogen, it will not foot the bill for blue hydrogen. Which Good. That's is the, the hydrogen yeah. created from natural gas, not renewable sources. From natural gas, they call it blue because it sounds better, but it's still made from fossil gas. Global Witness reports also uh, their report also notes that Canada's federal and Alberta governments spent hundreds of millions of dollars of public funds, at least six hundred and fifty four million dollars U.S. dollars to pay for this billion dollar quest project. Well, sign Joe Manchin up for that right away. Well, surprise, he really is behind it because it's a sop to the fossil fuel industry to get Republicans and conservatives like Manchin to sign on. And we should add, it is another subsidy for the fossil fuel industry. Paid for by taxpayers. Paid for by taxpayers as uh, they're only against uh, choosing winners and losers when the winners would be clean, renewable energy. Otherwise, no problem subsidizing fossil fuels until the end of time. So there you go. Next time you hear him talking about the uh, necessity of carbon capture technology, because I know Joe Manchin likes to talk about it a lot. All right, got to get out. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doy, and to my guest today, the American Prospects, Harold Meyerson. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. We hope we made it worth your while. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, you can download them all for free at bradblog.com. Why? Because folks like you support our efforts by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We are only listener supported. So thank you for that. Uh, you can drop you can drop me email. I'm Bradcast at Bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Brad Blog. I will see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck world. Mm-hmm.